if you if you believe in a democratic process, then you absolutely cannot stand for that. And if you believe in the rule of law, then you absolutely cannot stand for that kind of behavior. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm, we're doing well. We're we're hanging in there. We've had a little bit of a comedy of errors um, at our house lately. It, within yes. the last week, a pipe burst in our kitchen. Oh, no. Flooding the kitchen. Oh, no. Basically destroying the kitchen. Um, so the kitchen is all ripped out. There's fans going, have been going for days now, trying to dry everything out. And, you know, we're trying to get everything assessed, trying to figure out, like, you know, what's the extent of the damage, how much of that's going to get covered by our homeowner's insurance, and, and then figure out based on that, like, what are we going to do? You know, what, what's going to happen to this kitchen? I was really not planning on doing a kitchen remodel anytime soon, but now all of a sudden, 75% of the cabinets have been ripped out of my, my kitchen and you're looking at it thinking we could put stuff in, but it's going to be new stuff. And that just means it's, if you do a remodel, it's going to get ripped out in the future. So, you know, do you just redo it now while the opportunity is here, even though you're doing it under duress? So that's sort of, there's, there's that element. Then the other night we were, we were leaving our house. We we're pulling out of our, our driveway and we noticed some water running into the street coming from sort of this wet patch in our front yard. And we thought there had been, there had been some sort of work crews who'd been at the house ripping things out and they had parked in front of our house. And we were thinking like, okay, well maybe they, I don't know, maybe they had water basins or something. They just dumped them out on the front lawn. And uh, that's what's running into the yard. Cause I never noticed that before. Then uh, like two nights later, same thing. We're pulling out and we see it. No, sorry. We were coming home and we see it again, this big wet patch and the water running. We're like, Oh no. So we go and sort of dig it's like pitch black holding like our cell phones, you know, trying to see like what's going on, digging into the, into the ground. And sure enough, there's a irrigation line that's totally broken. Oh no. Um, that I didn't even know it was there. Honestly. <laughs> um, and I don't think was on, but I think it came back on because when the pipe burst in the kitchen, the water, <laughs> the water was coming out of an outlet, an electrical outlet onto oh the countertop. Oh my gosh. So we went and flipped the, the main breakers on the house to turn the, the power off, you know, so as yeah. not to electrocute everybody uh, or start a fire. And so I think when we flipped the breaker back on, it reset the irrigation system. Because then I had to go, we had a few other lines that we had turned off at various times. So I had to, I know I had to go and turn those lines back off because we saw the water come back on. But this particular line in the front, I must not have turned off again. And here it is running and running into the street because it's really broken. Um, And we had had some work done a few years ago, replacing the main sewage. We've had a bunch of plumbing issues, but like replacing the main sewage line right there in the front yard just about where that irrigation line runs. So it kind of makes me wonder if like, that's where it got severed was kind of in that process. Um, not necessarily blaming anybody for it. Just like, I think that's probably what happened. Nobody would have known it was there. I didn't even know it was there. Then. Um, oh no, it keeps going. It keeps going. Then we discovered that uh, the, the main kind of terminal for our irrigation lines, they all sort of meet in this main box and that's where you have kind of your regulation and the pipes kind of come off of that main box. And that's where um, you control the irrigation through an electronic panel that's connected to that. Okay. That, that box was full of water and overflowing. So like one of the pipes in that box in that main terminal was also. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so we're like, okay, we're going to shut off all the irrigation. We'll just water everything that we want to water by hand until we can figure out what we're going to do because it's all. Oh, man. So that's, that was 
last week. Oh my gosh. So you're off to a great start for this year, right? (laughs) Reaming. Oh man. Well, I mean, if if there's anything, it usually comes in threes. And so it sounds like you hit all three in one week. Yeah, we got it. I I think you should be good for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I hope so. I hope this is not like, no, 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 no. This was one irrigation, you know, water. That was just one. There's two others coming for you. Hopefully there's, hopefully that's not true. Yeah. Oh gosh. It's been a nightmare. Well, and the kids are all doing, you know, virtual school and several of them were doing that at a table we have in a little kind of breakfast nook in the kitchen. So obviously that had to change. They had to move. And, you know, we've just had all sorts of noise and work crews and we've got six people at the house and five of us are either on virtual school or, or working virtually. So it's been crazy. Oh gosh. I, I do not envy you. That's, uh, that's, that's tough. That's really tough. I'm sorry to hear that. We'll get there. Yeah. Baby steps one day at a time. Yeah. One, one decision at a time is going to yeah. get us there. One, one pipe at a time. One just... pipe at a time. <laughs> oh goodness. So we oh, don't have yeah. a sink either. We're doing dishes in our bathtub. Oh man, that's so. How much water was there, like in your house? Is it like inches of water on in the on the ground? Or uh, thankfully, not. We ca- we caught it like pretty quickly, mm-hmm. um, but it it was running out through the cabinetry and on the ground. Oh, we I mean, when it was coming out of the light socket, it was pretty obvious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not all of it was coming out of the light socket. That's just sort of about the height that it broke. And so it was sort of spraying straight at that spot on the wall. Some of that was coming out of the light socket. And then a bunch of it was just running straight down the wall. And it was leaking into the cabinets and onto the kitchen floor. And then also out into the backyard. Oh, my goodness. So it was like leaking both directions. Um, and yeah, it took a little while for us to get it sort of sorted. Um, cause our, our, our main line shut off. There's a couple of ways to do it. And I hadn't done it in, I don't know, probably eight years, maybe yeah. <laughs> years, like since we, uh, moved into the house. It was 10 years ago that we moved into the house. So I shut off one and that didn't do it. And so then we're like, okay, well that didn't work. So then we, you know, we're like running all the faucets to try to like reduce the water pressure just so we could get a little bit of reprieve. And then, you know, we finally figured out um, how to shut off the main line, but yeah, it was trippy, trippy. trippy. Yeah. What an adventure. Yes. Gosh. Ownership is great. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a, it's a never ending project, never ending. And the moment you think you're done, something breaks, gotta start all over again. So somewhat analogous to the house leaking and all pipes breaking (laughs) uh, has been this election cycle Mm -hmm. also in the last week. Yes. Yeah. Last week uh, that that kicked off 2021 to a bang. Um, Like a lot of people say, they they want their money back already on 2021. They don't like it. But it's, yeah, it's been crazy. And it's crazy to think that we live in the greatest country on the face of the planet and this is happening to our country and and you know we tout ourselves as the best democracy and yet there's such an attack on our democracy right now it's it's scary it's embarrassing it's it's all sorts of emotions and i think it's important you know we we talk about how from a legal perspective just as lawyers i think you know, in law school, they teach you to think a certain way, to issue spot, to break down issues and kind of analyze them in a different way. And so it's always interesting when you see these types of issues on, okay, let's, of course, there's this huge emotional response that we're all feeling, right? But there's also now the analysis part and how we got to this point, where we're going, and just how this kind of all came about. Um, and so that's been kind of interesting in a sad way that we're analyzing it, but on how we got to today and what could potentially happen from the events of last Wednesday. Yeah. I'm trying to just sort of make sense of it. Mm-hmm. And 
Yeah, yeah, I think you're exactly right. There's there's sort of the the lawyer way of viewing the world. Um, some might say the right way uh, <laughs> to view the world. I say somewhat tongue in cheek, but um, and then sort of the the everyday way of viewing events and and viewing the world. I think one of the one of the tricky parts about about the law and being an attorney and then sort of existing in society is that the law, first of all, it, it, we have laws for everything. You know, if you imagine a thing that you wouldn't even think there was a law about, there probably is a law about that. Mm -hmm. And, and you don't think, you know, most people, me included on a day-to-day basis, don't think about all the laws that are touching and controlling everything around them. But when you become a lawyer, you start doing things like you're driving down the road and what you're thinking about are the development plans that had to get approved and filed with the county and the easements and the deeds and the construction contracts and, you know, on and on and on, you know, the intellectual property rights that are embedded in the materials that are being used and the, you know, the uh, methodologies that are being used to do the construction work, et cetera, et cetera. So those sorts of things become kind of a little bit of your reality. And so I thought maybe we could take the events, at least of the last week, and maybe going back just a little bit beyond the last week, and sort of explain how we see it from this weird lens of being a lawyer and trying to explain why uh, why things are a certain way, at least legally speaking. This will not answer all of the political questions. This will not address all of the emotional questions, but it will only really address some of the legal issues. And that said, you know, you and I are not necessarily legal uh, experts on every single area of law. So this is just sort of the perspective of, of uh, lawyers and how, to, how you sort of view certain events. So, yeah, I think, I think where you have to start in the process is to start with the allegations of uh, fraud. And you can never prevent anybody from saying anything, really. I mean, that's just the truth. And that's, that's true outside the courthouse and it's true inside the courthouse. And you can't really prevent someone from filing a case in court. There just isn't really a method. We don't have it. It doesn't exist. There's not like a, a clear overarching way to bar somebody from entering the courthouse. They can always, almost always get in. Whether they're going to stay in is another question, but you can almost always get your foot in the door. And, you know, to, to be honest, it was really the Trump team that had their foot in the door in 60 cases, um, trying to prove up that there was a sufficient election fraud to, you know, do recounts and do audits and, and overturn elections and, and decertify uh, certified elections. And they were unsuccessful in any of those cases. So I thought maybe... Like, okay, we know that that's the outcome, but let's, and, and some, and sort of the political response to that has been, well, the courts weren't willing, the courts didn't help us out, right? Like that's sort of what some of the uh, rioters were saying on Wednesday that, well, we didn't have any choice because the court, look, the courts didn't even help us out. So what, what choice do we have? Well, the choice is to accept the fact that you lost in court. So legally speaking, you're by definition wrong because that's the way the legal process works. Uh, if you win in court, you're right. If you lose in court, you're wrong. You may not think you're wrong, but legally speaking, you're wrong. But in order to prove a case or to prove an allegation in court, it's really not that difficult. If you actually have mountains of evidence to support your allegation, it's actually quite easy to get that evidence into the courthouse. So in most states and in the federal courts, there's a, a baseline evidentiary standard, and most states and the, the federal courts have rules of evidence that mirror each other. They may not, may not be identical, but they mirror each other. And so they have these rules that say that these are the rules that are going to govern what evidence can come into the court as, as facts in the case or as facts that are presented to the court in the case. The baseline level of getting something in front of a judge so that they can consider it as evidence is, is it relevant? And then even if it's relevant, and that's a really low standard, like, is it relevant? to the question. And then the second question to that is usually something like, is it reliable? 
you know, is it a fraud? Is it a lie? Uh, is it prejudiced in some way? And if it's relevant, but it's not really reliable, then the court isn't going to consider it. But if it's relevant and it's reliable, i.e. someone's affidavit about the facts that are in the case and they're not lying, boom, that's pretty much it. That as long as that person knows what they're talking about, they're speaking from uh, a perspective where they have actual information that's relevant to the case, that evidence comes in. So, you know, as much as the Trump team has been shouting from the rooftops that they have mountains of evidence of fraud, it doesn't appear that they really had admissible evidence in court. And having evidence that is an allegation or that seems to support an allegation and having evidence that is admissible in court as a fact in the legal process are two different things. But if you really do have mountains of evidence that support your allegations, they sh it should be relatively easy to get that evidence into court. And it doesn't appear that they were able to do that, which again, legally speaking, means they don't have the evidence that they're suggesting legally. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think our legal system, our court system is based on the notion, like you said, that we want everyone to have their day in court, right? Everyone says, I have to have my day in court. So we keep it as, as an open enough process as, as possible. So like you said, the thresholds are pretty low relatively to, to get things in so that you can get your day in court. Whether or not you stay in court is a completely different question, but you are allowed to bring a claim that you think you may be entitled to in, in the court system. And we talked about before, you know, there's the, the evidence threshold and then there's standing, the, the standing threshold, right? Can you actually bring a claim? Does this court need to even look at your claim? Well, do you have standing? Do, do you have a right to bring this claim? And we've seen in all of these court cases, one, that standing was an issue, right? Where it's, let's say if, if the claim is, uh, let's, let's recount these 500 ballots, but we need 11,000 ballots to make a difference. Well, it's your 500 ballots isn't gonna make a difference. So why are we even here? Why are we even talking about it? So you're not gonna have standing. Then of course, to your point is, is the evidence threshold and introducing that. And, you know, I think when people, you know, talk about lawyers, of course, you know, there's all these bad jokes about lawyers and how we're terrible people and ambulance chasers, all the, all the different things. And, and some are really funny jokes. Yes. Yeah, some just, are great jokes. Just, just I love be clear. Them. Some of them are funny jokes. Yes. <laughs> and, and you hear about these cases and I, I know like family members when they hear about a, a wild case and they're just like, really? Like, how did this happen? And so for example, the, everyone remembered like the McDonald's hot coffee case that came out years ago and everyone thought, wow, how in the world was there a multi-million dollar settlement because someone spilled hot coffee on them? But when you actually start taking a look at the evidence in the case and the evidence that was introduced, it makes a lot more sense, right? You, again, you have this claim that people can bring this claim and then you have to meet, start meeting the, the threshold requirements from there. So like in that case, you had evidence that McDonald's, that there had been multiple cases of people burning hot coffee on them. That's truthful, it's reliable. Boom, you can introduce that evidence into court. Then in this case, you had the evidence of all the damages. There were hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical bills because, I mean, this was over like third degree burns where there, the victim had to have skin grafts happen to them. So boom, you introduce that into court. It's truthful, it's reliable. This is something that people can rely on. Once you meet these thresholds, that's when you can get along in the court system, court process, you can get to evidentiary hearings. Eventually, you know, people would want a trial, right? At the end of the day, but you have to meet all the steps to get to that point. And so what, what frustrates me is when I hear that, you know, you, you can't rely on the courts or the courts have failed. They're, they're not there for the people. I, I completely would disagree. It's just that they haven't met the threshold requirements to get to that point that you think you need to be. You know, you're, you didn't get the trial because you didn't get to that point. You didn't meet all the requirements there. And so, you know, this is just our court system trying to get rid of the cases that just have no merit, no truthful merit to them to 
take up a jury's time, to take up the court's time. You know, trials take weeks on end. I'm sure this one would if, if it got to that point because of how um, publicized and, and the emotional nature of it. But it's just not getting to that point because you just didn't meet the first, you know, steps one through three in that case. And so, you know, I, I think that we need to really analyze the court system in just going through each of those steps. And then that's how you can tell whether or not were the courts really there? And in this case, I think the courts over in 60 different cases, we have multiple courts looking at this. They've analyzed the issues and they found that there wasn't any truthful evidence to be presented in front of them. Yeah. And also not sufficient evidence, as you were pointing out, Rachel, to give you the remedy that you're seeking. Mm-hmm. And that's an important thing because I, there's, uh, there, there's a difference in a court case between being right about something and then being able to get a remedy to that you want from the court. And so you can be right about, say, you know, I think in Arizona, the numbers were like 100 or 200 ballots that, that maybe were, were inputted improperly because of some manual changes that, that's a you know, overworked person out of you know, volunteering at a, a, an election site uh, messed up. But that wasn't enough, even if that was true. And I don't know if anybody was really disputing that it wasn't true. But even if that's true, it doesn't, it doesn't give you the result that you're looking for. And so the court is sort of stuck. It's not like the judge can just wave a wand and say, I'll ignore the fact that we don't have proof to, to warrant the remedy that you want. And I'll just give you the, the remedy anyways. A judge can't do that either. The, the judge doesn't have the legal capacity to do that. They don't have the authority to do that. And it and it turns out, uh, whether, whether you like them or not, judges overall are pretty beholden to what the law says they can do. And especially in a big case like these, and these are uh, spotlight type cases, the judges are not going to just use their personal opinion to come to a conclusion. They're going to scrutinize what the law says the outcome is supposed to be based on the facts that are presented to them that are admissible in court. And they're going to make a decision based on that, plain and simple. And it's going to be a fairly emotionless kind of choice for them. Because again, these are spotlight type cases. They know they're going to get reviewed. They know they're going to be in the media. And I think, you know, naturally those judges are going to be even more sensitive to the fact that their their job is just to implement what the law tells them to do. You know, and the idea that you're incapable of <laughs> proving that in say 50 court cases kind of indicates that you don't have much of a sh- you don't have much of a, of a case. And I think the other distinction between say being in court trying to prove something up in the legal context, which let's be honest, election results are legal results. They're they're a result that the law says this is how you know this is the process. This is how the 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 election results are tallied. This is how they're certified. This is, you know, there's a law that tells you how you run elections. And so the outcome is a legal outcome. You go into court to have a legal outcome. The difference between that and say, making your case at a press conference or on social media or in any other media outlet is that when you show up in court, first of all, there are rules that apply to you and what can and cannot be presented as facts in the case. And the second piece, maybe even more important, is your adversary is right there. And they get to respond. You don't just get to shout things in an echo chamber. They get to respond to you. And then there's a neutral person in the middle who's trying to decide. And they're going to listen to both sides. And that's really the difference between running these sorts of issues that have a a political tint to them, obviously. But running them through the court process is unlike on the campaign trail or at a rally or at a press conference or on social media, your adversary is right there and they get to respond. You don't get to just say things without them responding. And there's a neutral party in the middle trying to decide who's right. And you have to follow rules. Uh, and all of that together is the judicial system. And again, if you win in court, you're right legally. Whether or not you like the outcome, you're right. If you lose, you're wrong legally. That's it. That's the way the court systems work. And that's the way the quote unquote rule of law that everybody uh, I, I think rightly adheres to that's the way the rule of law works. When you're right in court, you're right. When you're wrong, you're wrong, period. Yeah. Whether you agree or disagree. There's, there's two points there I really want to hone in on that you said. So the first is, 
you know, when you're in court, you are as an adverse, as, as an advocate for your client, as a lawyer, you are subject to so many rules, right? You first have the court rules. So you've got um, rules of, let's say, civil procedure on how you file file a claim in court. There are evidentiary rules. Um, so you're first subject to all of those rules, right? You have to adhere to, to that set and making sure that you know, your, your claim follows all these um, uh, rules, that it, the formatting, everything, everything's done correctly, filing's done correctly. Then on top of all of those rules, then you have, again, like the rules of court, just being in court, speaking to a judge, speaking to your adversary, um, making sure, you know, that if, you know, you can make objections, things like that. Then on top of those rules, then you have your ethical rules. So every lawyer is held to ethical rules based on whatever their state law is. And you are not allowed to make baseless false claims. You can't just go out and spouting in court um, you know, horrible facts that, that you know are, are, are lies. You, you're not allowed to do that under our ethical rules. So when you're in court, like you said, you're, you're subject to all these rules now. When you're out in the public, go ahead, you, you know, do what you want. You can, you can do that. Social media, that's your life. But when you're in court, you can't do that. And so that, that really helps our court system, you know, narrow down the facts to find out what is truthful and what is reliable. The other point um, that you brought up is just the review system, right? When a judge makes a decision, this isn't a decision that they make lightly. This is something that they've really thought hard. They've re reviewed the law. They look at any precedent. And it's really important to note that wherever these court cases started, there's typically a higher court, right? And so if you don't like the outcome of, say, the first court case, you can appeal it and go to whatever the next higher court is. So then maybe the Court of Appeals. If you don't like that, you can appeal it again and go to the Supreme Court of the United States. And we saw that happen here. We saw one of the court cases go to the US Supreme Court and the Supreme Court didn't take it. And so again, there's the rule of law. If they're not gonna review it, it goes back down to the highest court's decision. That is the final decision. Like you said, if you're wrong, you're wrong. If you're right, you're right legally. That's the end of that claim. Yeah, absolutely. And and you saw that, as is true in in most uh, court proceedings, not all the cases get appealed, not all the cases end up in front of a, a the highest court in that jurisdiction, be it state Supreme Court level or U.S. Supreme Court level. Uh, and, and we saw that play out in these 50 or 60 odd cases. Um, now, one, one slight little uh, caveat, I think, to one of the things that you were saying about lawyers and being truthful. Um, the standard actually applies outside of court as well. Um, you're, you're not allowed to make materially false claims that would indicate that you are dishonest, a dishonest person. And that can apply to interactions. As a lawyer, that can apply to interactions outside of in front of a court. I mean, you have, you have an absolute ethical and legal obligation in front of the court to be truthful. And, and you can absolutely be sanctioned for that. But you can be sanctioned for making false statements that, again, indicate that you, you kind of have uh, dishonesty as a character, for, a character flaw uh, and make those claims outside of court. And you can be sanctioned for that as well. And if, if, um, you know, if there was evidence to suggest that this was kind of you and the way that you operated and you were seeking a law license. Uh, I think most Supreme courts under their ethical rules could say, no, we won't issue you a license because it appears that you have a dishonest character. Now, some people hearing that may be like, well, I know some lawyers who don't really fit that description. So I'm not trying to, <laughs> to defend everybody in the world, uh, nor, nor do I think either you or I are trying to say, defend the judicial process in every single instance. Um, in every single case. And so there's, you know, it's not to say that the judicial process is, is without flaws. It's more to say that I think we have to recognize that in particular, in these particular cases, where judges know there's a national spotlight on these cases, they're going to really try to get them right and, and do what the law tells them they have to do. Because there's a good, you know, there's a good chance that the case is going to be scrutinized, their decision is going to be scrutinized, and the case could be appealed. And so I think the, the, the tendency in those situations for judges is to be ultra careful 
the way that they're doing their job, their job. And, and again, I think vast, vast, vast majority of judges do that anyways. They really try to do a good job and to really apply the law correctly. But I, again, I think in those sorts of spotlight cases, uh, they're going to be ultra sensitive to it. So those were, those were the court cases that did not end the rhetoric about all of the evidence and the allegations. And, you know, we saw uh, senators and members of the House and, and, and members of state legislatures as well, claiming that because of the quote unquote allegations, we needed to do all sorts of in-depth investigation. Whether they're going to do that in the future is sort of their prerogative, but there's not, a, there, as far as I'm aware, there wasn't a legal standard that says if you had allegations that you couldn't prove in court, the legislature can just step in and stop the electoral process. Uh, and they, that didn't mean they weren't trying. Uh, I know in our state, in Arizona, the, the Republican Party was trying to get the governor to call a special session of the legislature. So essentially, they could just change the law after the fact. I mean, can you imagine changing the electoral laws after the election? I, that's a disaster. It's, it's unthinkable that you would change the electoral laws after the election. Mind you, these are electoral laws that the Republican Party, which controls all branches of government in our state, these are electoral laws that the Republican Party handpicked. They just didn't like this, the outcome of this one particular election. And now it appears, uh, at least from what seems to be coming out about what was going on in Georgia, that potentially where this was coming from was pressure being put on these states and, and state party leaders from the White House. Uh, that is distressing, to say the least. Just that idea that any party in the White House would try to apply pressure to states to overturn the results of elections, to not certify results of elections when legally they must certify the results of the election, and to try to change the rules of the election after the fact, after the election has happened, in the White House's favor, is shocking. Anybody who is looking at it neutrally, and I would ask anybody to try to look at it neutrally, and try to put yourself in the opposite position of where you are politically, and just imagine what you would think if the opposite side of you politically was trying to do the same thing. I'm telling you, you would be outraged, absolutely outraged, uh, because it's an enormous affront to the whole concept of free and fair elections and, the, and a democratic process. And I understand that we live in a republic and we have a Republican form of government, yada, yada, yada. Like I get all that. So I don't, you don't need to, nobody needs to, oops, nobody needs to uh, pepper me with uh, messages and DMs and emails about that. Like I get it, but you know, just try, if you just try to sort of mentally put yourself in the opposite side of the political ledger and imagine that, that the side opposite of you was doing that, uh, you'd be pretty mad. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that was going to be my point. You have to think on if, if the shoe were on the other foot, how would you feel? And you just have to think about what precedent that it, it creates. And if this were, if this were going to happen, if you could exert enough pressure from the white house to overturn state certified election results, just what would that mean for the future, right? In any, any election, well, what's, what's the outcome? What's the final result? Well, you, you would never know because there potentially could always be pressure that's brought on that changes the result. And I think, you know, in, in very contested elections like this one, or just, you know, not when, when the stakes are and, and the emotional stakes are so high, still there's, you know, all across the country on, on election night, right? Everyone's glued to the TV. Everyone's looking at all the maps. Everyone's waiting to see what the results are. And, that's that's part of the process. And if, if you take everyone through that process and yet at the end, eh, no, let's, let's change this. We're, nah, it's, it's now, it's, it's, we're going to go the other way. Or you change the rules after the fact. What does that say about our process? And, and what does that mean? There's, there's just always going to be uncertainty for the future. And I think at that point too, then you really discourage voters, right? We, we want to encourage voting. We should have more voter turnout. This, this election was great where we had a lot more than usual, but we, we want to encourage more people to get out and vote because we want people to know that their vote actually counts. And when you start changing the rules after the fact 
and you decertify elections that again there's no court cases there's there's no um you know legal opinions that show you have the right to do so i mean what what does that say to people standing in line on on election day waiting to vote what does that say to them when they they truly want to make a difference in their election it really doesn't it it doesn't give people a lot of faith at that point and a lot of hope in our democratic system and so you just have to again like you said think about if this were on the other side put yourself in that neutral position it is not an okay precedent to set in the future absolutely not no it's it it means there is no democracy mm -hmm. if that's what you can do if you can change the rules after the fact if you can stop the certification of elections for any reason, and these were really politically motivated reasons, let's be perfectly frank about it. If you can do that, we don't have a democracy. There's no democratic process. It doesn't exist. It's a fraud. It's a facade. And if you, if you believe in a democratic process, then you absolutely cannot stand for that. And if you believe in the rule of law, then you absolutely cannot stand for that kind of behavior. What has been the well let's let's skip forward just a little bit then to wednesday uh so these allegations didn't really go away uh obviously we we heard what uh was said at the trump rally i think we know what was said in in social media leading up to the trump rally uh we know what kind of pressure trump was trying to put on mike pence to essentially not do what the law says he's supposed to do and just grind the process and refuse to act. Um, I, I'm assuming that that seems to be that was the ploy was to just have the vice president say, well, I refuse to do anything here and therefore the procedure cannot proceed and therefore the elections will not, you know, the, the electoral votes will not be certified. Again, put yourself in any, any, any sort of neutral position trying to view this as like from the other side, what would you think if the other side was doing that? You would be outraged. And I think everybody should be outraged that anybody would try that, whether they're on your side or not. Because again, it, it essentially says we don't believe in democratic process and we don't believe in the rule of law. And all of the allegations that were being thrown around about the fraud and how it was so obvious that there was fraud and they won, you know, they won by a landslide and the election was stolen from them ignores the fact that again, legally speaking, and, and when I say legally speaking, I actually kind of mean like in real life, the way things actually work, the way we really function as a people and society and as a government, which is in through laws, legally speaking, all of that was false. 100% false. Because again, you, if you win in court, you're right. If you lose in court, you're wrong. That's it. That's it. You don't have to agree with the outcome. But legally speaking, if you win, you're right. If, if you lose, you're wrong. And they lost, and therefore they're wrong. And everything that they were saying was false, totally false. Uh, but that didn't prevent them from doing it. What was, aside from, and I kind of want to sort of set aside the, the assault on the Capitol building for just a second, but one of the things on that theme that was the most distressing for me was then to listen to the objections to certification of, of various election results, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, um, and the, the members of Congress who were objecting uh, stood up in Congress and just repeated all of these allegations about all of this fraud and said things like uh, the law wasn't followed and the the legislative process wasn't followed and you know the secretary of state acted illegally no they didn't <laughs> again all of that was litigated all of it was litigated and they lost in court and again legally speaking and i would assume members of congress understand what the law means and what the rule of law means and what conclusions of court cases mean legally speaking they're a hundred percent wrong one hundred percent wrong not even point zero 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 one percent correct you're 100% wrong. If you lost in court, you're legally wrong. And so to hear, to hear Congress people stand up and make those allegations uh, in those objections, understanding, again, the context uh, was pretty shocking. And again, I think if, if you view it from a neutral perspective of, you know, do you believe in the democratic process? Do you actually believe in the rule of law? Uh, it's unacceptable. I understand that anybody can object for any reason. There's, you know, there's not there's not necessarily a standard other than getting somebody from the House and the Senate to sign off on your objection. So you can stand up and object for any reason. But 
if you're an objective, uh, informed person, which you assume members of Congress are, there's no way you with a straight face can make those allegations because they're just totally false. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like you said before, we're not here touting saying our legal system is perfect, right? It has its flaws, the civil system and the criminal system, they have their flaws, but there's a process and that is the rule of law. And that process happened. And that's all there is to it. You don't like the process, you don't like the process, but it happened. There's again, the all, all 60 cases so far. I mean, nothing's come back that has shown that anything about the process was incorrect or, um, you know, mishandled and that's it. And as, as representatives, you, and, and as Congress members creating the law and, you know, really they're, they're not the ones upholding the law, but, but they're the ones creating it. They should be the ones who really, um, really support it and, you know, don't, and, and try not to, um, shed, you know, questions about it and, and its purpose, any of that. It's this, this is the rule of law. This is what was created. And so we all need, if, like you said, if you truly believe in it, then and this was the process that happened, then accept it. Yeah. And, and honestly, that is the hard part about it mm-hmm. because you can lose and it sucks. It really sucks. It's not fun to lose. Nobody likes to lose. Mm-hmm. And you can lose and think you were right, but you still lost and it still sucks. Yeah. Uh, no matter how much you think you're right. I mean, I've been involved in cases where we lost and it sucked. Uh, it's not fun to lose, but that doesn't, it doesn't make you right. Legally speaking, you're just wrong. You can disagree, but you're just wrong legally. And that's a fact. That's the way our system works. Um, so, okay. So then focusing on a bit of the rioters, I, so what I, and I was, um, I think it, I think it really started to kick off somewhere around two thirty, three o'clock local time for me. Um, and that was when I started sort of seeing the news reports and I turned on, turned on the news it really basically just killed my whole day. Cause then I was glued to, to watching what was going on. And, um, so I keep pretty close tabs on, uh, Eastern European politics. It's a little bit of a pet issue for me and really, really close tabs on Ukrainian politics. And it was like, if, if you didn't know where this was happening, you didn't see the MAGA hats, you didn't see the Trump scarves, et cetera, you didn't see the US Capitol building. It was just sort of like a generic government building and a generic wild crowd with flags. You would have thought it was Ukraine because that is exactly what happened in Ukraine when the, the uh, war began in Eastern Ukraine. Separatist groups, uh, you know, sort of ignoring what happens on Maidan in sort of the revolution uh, in Kiev, but separatist groups stormed and occupied uh, government offices in Eastern Ukrainian cities and took over the cities by occupying the government offices and then basically occupying the, the functions of government um, in those cities. That's what happened in Donetsk. That's what happened in Lutsk. That's what happened in, uh, not Lutsk, sorry, Luhansk. That's what happened in a bunch of other cities in Eastern Ukraine. That's how it began. That's what it was very reminiscent of that to me when I was watching it, which was extraordinarily distressing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I looked on, you know, the next day when you look across um, newspapers across the world and like the, the major newspapers and to see the pictures and the headlines and how they described it. Like you said, if, if you didn't see American flags, anything over the Capitol, like you wouldn't think this is the United States. This, you wouldn't think this would ever happen in our country. And it's, like I said before, it's, it's all sorts of emotions. It's, it's sadness, it's fear, it's embarrassment. It's just, it's scary, really scary times to see that this is happening in our own country. Yeah, and I guess we got a little bit of a precursor to that in Michigan, because similar elements uh, took control of the Capitol building in Michigan, and they were armed, mm-hmm. quite heavily armed uh, in Michigan, I guess, to to our, our luck, um, the group in DC was not heavily armed, but I, I believe that's because DC has a law that says if they see you with a weapon, they can arrest you. Um, and I, you know, I'm not necessarily advocating one way or another for 
particular gun laws in that statement. Just I think con contextually, that was the difference between Michigan and DC. Maybe somebody will tell me I'm wrong. Um, I, I'm also hearing a lot of chatter about um, the lack of police aggression against the crowd and the, the difference in the way that the police in DC in particular reacted to protesters uh, for Black Lives Matter versus literal rioters um, trying to overturn or, or take control of a government office in DC, that the level of violence um, force used against them was marked and different. Um, I mean, it's hard to argue against that. It's a fact. And the only thing I, I, I seem to think, although I don't know that we've really heard a lot about it, is that perhaps due to the, the numbers um, and the nature of the rioters on Wednesday, there were orders to the police to not escalate the violence. Uh, may, you know, maybe, maybe that's the case. I don't know. But, you know, yeah. I think both of those... Both of those two issues are just, in my mind, they're a bit distinct. I don't like drawing that conclusion necessarily as a straight line because I think both those issues are, are a bit distinct. The, I don't think Black Lives Matter protesters are equivalent to rioters storming the Capitol. I didn't see any Black Lives Matter protesters storming the Capitol. Yeah. So, um, and, and I think everybody can probably agree or most people could probably agree the motivation behind the two groups is slightly different. Yeah, exactly. One legal issue that I've seen popped up, um, and this is, you know, something that we might hear more of as, as the year progresses. And I, let me say this, I, I think I got this correctly, that, you know, because this was an assault on the Capitol, the Capitol Police had primary jurisdiction over policing it. At that point, it, from what I've read, that um, requests were made for the National Guard to come in and assist. But because DC is not a state, it's not just like Arizona, you know, the governor can ask for the National Guard to come in. The request has to go through the Department of Justice, I believe. And that request, from what I've heard, was actually denied. And so one legal issue that we might see is whether or not DC is really gonna try and push for statehood after this happens so that they can better patrol themselves in another event like this. And when you think about large events always happening in DC, we, you know, we've got an inauguration coming up in several days. Maybe DC, you know, depending on what's, what you believe in, maybe they should have more jurisdiction to be able to help control themselves than having to run everything through a political process when you might have a political party that's um, uh, adverse to your interests. And so, you know, that'll be an interesting conversation to see if, if DC either pushes for statehood or just pushes for more control over being able to police itself. But it's, yeah, I, I completely agree with you that the, the, uh, the amount of force that was, um, that was met with the, the, the rioters where it's just not what we've seen in the last months where with all of the, the civil protests going on in the country. Yeah. I mean, that again, it's just a fact that mm -hmm. you, that's, you can't argue it. It's literally a fact. So there's, there's no arguing that the, the response from the police was completely different um, than the response that Black Lives Matter uh, protesters uh, got. And, and that no one has to equivocate and argue about that. But I, again, I, I, even even appreciating that and and not trying to diminish in any way sort of the purpose and and reason for say the black lives matter protests they are not equivalent to the riots at the capitol and i think drawing drawing lines between the two is a little bit of a, a false narrative and it's a little bit of a uh, uh, it's a mistake to draw lines between the two it flips both ways one is if you're in support of Black Lives Matter protesters, and now you're driving equivalence to the rioters at the Capitol, in some way you're equating yourself to them and you're not them. And your issue is not their issue at all, even close. You know, your issue is a human rights issue. Their issue is an overturning the government issue, overturning the democratic process issue. Those are not the same. Those are different. 
you don't want to be them. And I don't think you want to, you don't want to be tied to them. I think highlighting the violence that was meted upon uh, Black Lives Matter protesters, and, and this is violence that happened all over the country, not just in DC, uh, is a worthwhile thing to highlight, but you don't have to do it by using the riots at the Capitol as the marker. Uh, because then again, you draw a little bit of an equivalence to the rioters at the Capitol. And, and then in reverse, this whole idea of like equivocating about how basically, you know, you're hearing people, pundits, et cetera, equivocating about basically how these riots at the Capitol were not that bad and how nobody was complaining about people smashing shop windows, you know, the quote unquote liberal media or mainstream media wasn't complaining about people smashing shop windows during the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, I mean, I don't get that. Again, if you are trying to diminish the, the uh, severity of the riots at the Capitol and you are opposed to the Black Lives Matter protesters, why are you trying to tie yourself to them? But that's what you're doing. When, every time you're, you're drawing a, you're trying to uh, compare two things together, by definition, you're saying they're at some level equal or at some level, depending on the response to them, there's an equilibrium. Uh, and so I don't really understand why both either side is trying to do that logically. I understand why they're trying to do it politically, but I don't understand why logically you would want to do that. I guess I should say for the record, I think anybody trying to equate or trying to diminish uh, what happened at the Capitol is an idiot and doesn't know what they're talking about and really has nefarious uh, intent. Because again, put yourself in a neutral position, put yourself on the opposite side. And there is no scenario where you would think that that is okay, where you would not be appalled that somebody was literally trying to overturn the democratic process by force. And then they actually did it. You know, this is not just intent. This is also action. They actually did it. They actually broke up a joint session of Congress. They actually occupied the building. They actually smashed up offices. They literally were trying to find senators and Congress people in the building. Okay. Like it's, it was beyond intent. They did it. So I think anybody who really believes in the democratic process and the rule of law should be outraged. We all should be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And it's just the, you know, for, for me, I've, I've been to DC a few times. I, as a political science major, I love DC. It's just such a beautiful place in terms of history of our country. And I've been to Congress a few times and gotten a few um, tours from congressional staffers who were my friends. So I got to see kind of a little bit more of the behind the scenes look. And I mean, this is our nation's capital. I mean, there's so much history in that building and just to see everything be looted and, you know, papers thrown about and windows. Destroyed. I mean, this is, this is literally our nation's history. And it, it's just, it, again, it's, it's, it's so sad and, and disheartening to just see that lack of respect at all for the, the history of your, of your country that, you know, if, if you truly love this country, why are you disrespecting it so much? Yeah. Well, and the other, the other equivocating that you, you see out there is the like, yeah, but the, you know, liberal protesters occupied and protested inside state capitals on other issues. And uh, first of all, any sort of yeah, but argument is almost always extraordinarily dangerous. That line is, it's very, a very seductive, Mm-hmm. way to think very seductive it's it's why you know pick a dictator across the country and that's the way that they talk and you know try and read a transcript of uh, putin's uh talking about uh any challenge to what happens in in russia and that's the way he talks you know listen i hate to say it but any any transcript of a lot of uh politicians and political pundits in this country that's the way they talk because it's a just it's a diversion it's a deflection. It doesn't actually address the issue. So anytime you, you have to use, yeah, but, but what about, um, as you're coming back to an argument, you're in trouble. And again, it's very seductive, but it's a very, uh, very uh, Im- improper way to address uh, an issue from a, from a logical perspective. But at any rate, the, that kind of equivocating that you're hearing is, is frankly dishonest. Nobody is, uh, I don't, 
I'm not hearing a lot of people suggesting a different context to the riots at the Capitol on Wednesday. Everybody understands the context. That's not, nobody's disputing the context of what happened. And context is everything. And the context is a group of people being led along that somehow they were robbed of an outcome that they actually were not robbed of in any way legally, not in any way, but being led along to believe that they were robbed of an outcome by people who know better and then acting out on that, trying to overturn the government and trying to overturn the democratic process. That's the context. It's not even in dispute. So with that context, there's, there is no yeah, but, or what about? There isn't. There's no equivalence. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. And so I think, you know, kind of where, where do we go from here? Right. And, you know, we, we've seen um, a lot of um, arguments we've seen this week that the house has introduced articles of impeachment again. So kind of, I think, you know, where we can go from here and what, what can people possibly expect to see um, or not see. So I think one um, event that people have talked about. So one possible option is president Trump resigns right? That's an option. Is that really going to happen? I would put a lot of money on that not happening, yeah. but it, but, but it is an Definitely option, not. right? There's only been one president in our history to ever reside. Um, and I, I don't think Trump's going to be a second. So, but that's an option. The second option that people have thrown around is the 25th amendment. I think a lot of people have learned what the 25th amendment is after the last uh, two weeks. And the 25th Amendment allows the vice president and the members of the cabinet to basically discharge the duties of the president when he or she is unable to do so. Basically, when they are unable to discharge their own powers, their duties, that's when then they can come and go in. Now, that's it's really vague, right? We've never seen this happen before. So we, you know, who knows what, what that really means. Um, obviously at this point, we need members of the cabinets and Mike Pence to go along with it. It sounds like Mike Pence is not willing to go along with this. So that doesn't seem like it could be a viable option, but that option likely would be the quickest just because there's not this huge formal process, um, that we've seen with impeachment. Yeah. Well, and the, just to pause on the, the, both of those scenarios just really quickly, because, you know, you cited the Nixon example of of the one time that a president has resigned. Mm-hmm. Well, people seem to forget that Gerald Ford then, um, geez, what's the word I'm looking for? Pardon him. Pardon, thank you, Gene. That <laughs> uh, Gerald Ford then pardoned Nixon. Mm-hmm. And I think you would have to assume if Trump resigned, he would. he's only going to do it if he knows that Pence is going to pardon him. Yeah. So I don't, yeah, uh, yeah, I hear people talking about that option. I don't think it's as smart an option as they seem to suggest. Uh, because the likelihood, because you, know, you also hear people talking about, well, Trump is saying that maybe he could pardon himself, and there's no precedent for that. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, would be a very difficult uh, argument to make legally, um, even with the composition of the Supreme Court as it is. I have a hard time believing you would win that argument that a president can pardon himself, meaning he can do whatever he wants. He's a king. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we were intending not to have a king, um, if I remember my history right. So... I think the, resig- the, the resignation element is a I'm getting pardoned option. Mm-hmm. So that's, I, I don't know if that's quite as tantalizing for uh, the Democratic Party, I would assume, than they're letting on. The 25th Amendment actually has a really interesting provision in it that uh, I haven't heard anybody talk about. So let's say the vice president and a majority of the cabinet secretaries agree. President Trump is un- unable to uh, uh, fulfill his duties and exercise his powers as president. They then give that written certification essentially to uh, the leader of the House and and the the Senate. And then after that, within four days, the president can tell them, the Senate and the House, no, no, that's not true. And then it sort of overturns what was done. And then there's like this 21-day process or so where the vice president can kind of come back and try to recertify that, no, that's not true. In fact, the president is unable, okay? So you sort of play that out. Let's, you know, Pence does it today. Four days from now is the 16th. 
And so Trump just says on the 16th, no, it's not true. I'm able to exercise, I'm able to do my duties. So now he's not removed. And then you've got this fight for the next four days. So it's not as clear cut when you kind of really read through the little the minutia of that amendment. It's not as clear cut that if Mike Pence was, uh, Mike Pence and, and a majority of the, the secretaries were interested in that option, that it would have the result that they're intending because the president has this option to come back and, and essentially tell Congress it's not true. And then that short circuits the first act. Then you got to come back and do it again. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really not being talked about a lot right now. No. I think everyone's just like, come on, 25th Amendment, come on. And that's when everyone immediately Googles, what is the 25th Amendment? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I'm not making it up. Anybody can read it. <laughs> but yeah, I think. So then the, the third option then, which is kind of what we're seeing right now in the process this week, is articles of impeachment, which we saw this last time. We saw the House did impeach President Trump over, um, you know, all of the Ukraine matters before, however many months ago that was. Um, so they have reintroduced articles, but as we saw before, that was a long process, right? It took a long time. Um, the House has to do their part, then the Senate has to do their part, and as we saw before, the Senate didn't take Trump out of office. And so whether that is a you know, viable option, I guess you would say, you know, I would highly doubt that. Um, I think at, at this point, it's really, you know, setting that the house is really setting a precedent, right? That they are not taking this lightly. And so they are moving forward with the articles of impeachment because we want to show in the future that doing these types of acts and inciting uh, a riot in the Capitol is, is not gonna be taken lightly. This is not okay. Um, whether it actually goes anywhere, especially you know, before inauguration day, who knows? We did see court nominee be uh, you know, appointed in what, like two. So I mean, who knows? If people really wanna get their act together, they can, um, but that is one option too that we're kind of seeing play out right now. Yeah. And it appears that they're going to bring articles of impeachment, even if it uh, occurs after the Trump administration is over. Um, uh, there's a draft of the articles that were circulated yesterday, um, speaking right now on the 12th. So on the 11th, there were draft articles that were circulated, kind of laying out the case that they're going to make. Um, we almost already know what the defenses are going to be. Um, and one of the main defenses in the, the original impeachment, it's almost uh, incredible that you can even say that, but in the original impeachment trial was that Trump had not committed a, a crime in the criminal code. Or they, hadn't, they hadn't argued that he'd committed a crime in the criminal code. And the Constitution says you can uh, impeach for high crimes and misdemeanors. And there's a theory that that means you have to have violated one of the criminal statutes. And they haven't alleged a violation of a criminal statute directly in the draft articles of impeachment. So I think you already know what one of the defenses is going to be. Uh, aside from other defenses, you're already kind of hearing. There's also uh, sort of a leak of a memo that McConnell circulated about the timing of a Senate trial, essentially saying that the Senate trial couldn't begin until just based on the way the timing works, the Senate trial couldn't even begin until January 20th or 21st. Of course, by that point, it will no longer be McConnell, it'll be Chuck Schumer, and the Democrats get to write the rules in the Senate. So it could mean that the rules for the trial change if they so choose. Uh, I don't know if they would do that because uh, it's not really necessary for them to change the impeachment rules, but they sort of set their own impeachment rules uh, for, sorry, rules, sort of rules of procedure for an impeachment trial. So that, yeah, that impeachment option, I think is the one they're going to, it looks like that's the one they're going to pursue because they want to because it would, if they were successful, prevent Trump from running for office again in the future. Um, and it sort of checks the boxes of doing what they can to hold them accountable for what happened and saying that they did something so they can look their constituents in the eye and say, we did everything we could. Um, sorry, one other little nuance on the 25th Amendment, and I kind of got this piece wrong, is that after the president, so there's this four-day period where the president can say, no, 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 that's not true. I'm, I'm able to discharge my duties. Then within 48 hours, Congress has to meet, and then they have to determine the issue within 21 days. And so again, I think 
it doesn't really change the outcome that I was suggesting, but I think anybody who's being honest understands that that's not, it's really not a viable option. As you say, like people are just sort of throwing out the idea of the 25th Amendment without explaining all the details that go into it um, and that the timing actually wouldn't really allow you to do it because he'd be out of office by that point anyways. Yeah, exactly. Well, who knows what the next eight days will bring. (laughs) As you've personally experienced and the country has experienced, uh, the last, you know, the first days of 2021 has uh, been a heck of a ride already. So we could, you know, who knows what will happen still. I've stopped trying to predict. Yeah. (laughs) I I just don't have the ability to predict uh, what could happen. But yeah, and this, we're going to have to at some point follow up and actually talk about what does it mean that now the Georgia runoff elections went the way of the Democrats, even though I kept telling people that there was a 25% chance of that happening. Um, they did. Some clients believed me and some clients didn't seem to believe me. So now uh, I think we have to reckon with that. Uh, it doesn't look like major tax reform is going to happen in the first hundred days. So maybe that gives us a little bit of a repeat reprieve here uh, where we don't have to think about it too hard for purposes of the podcast. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Isn't that crazy to think that there's still all of that news that mm-hmm. was kind of huge news that was overshadowed by even crazier news last week? But yeah, it's definitely a, a future podcast episode is what does this new change in power mean for the tax laws and what people might be able to expect? Yeah. And in context of what we were describing, I think it tells you everything you need to know about the, where the motivation and pressure was coming from to challenge the election results to know that these Georgia election results are, as far as I'm aware, not being challenged in court. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. Nobody is screaming from the rooftops that they were a total fraud. Yeah. I think that tells you everything you need to know about the motivation and source of motivation for the challenges to the other election results. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, as usual, Rachel, been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me. Yeah. Good chatting with you. Thank you. If you're enjoying what we're doing with the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on social at Wealth and Law and follow our blog, wealthandlaw.com. See you there.